Hey, Mom. I'm heading out. Oh, wonderful, dear. Where are you going? Oh, uh, well, uh... Come on, you can tell me, William. What's this all about? I'm going... I'm going... to a Connect Four tournament. <laughs> okay. Have fun, loser. Hello there. I'm here to compete in the tournament. What's your rating? Rating? <laughs> Gosh, I don't have anything like that. I've only ever played Connect Four in the basement of the orphanage with the kind but practically mute stranger. And I didn't even live there. Well, it's three fifty to compete. That's a lot of money, $3.50. You sure you want to do this, kid? We're expecting a lot of pros coming in here today, including the Blue Blocker. The Blue Blocker? The Blue Blocker. I can't believe you don't even know who she is. She's the meanest, toughest, smartest Connect Four player around. The last person she played died in an unrelated car accident four months later. Hmm. Well, put me in the tournament anyway. I've been training my whole life with a janitor for this moment. The Allegheny County Connect Four tournament is underway, folks. And poll workers from all across Pennsylvania and even Nevada have come far and wide to compete. Instead of finishing their ballot counting for the 2020 American presidential election, it's red versus blue tonight, but only in round pieces made to connect in rows that are vertical, horizontal, and diagonal. So you're my first opponent? Gosh, do I get to sit in this chair? I guess I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Honestly, it's my first time. Hurry up, nerd. I guess I'll go easy on you since you're a noob. And that grand prize of $7 will be mine no matter what. Wow, I've never seen someone start there on Connect Four. Wow, nerd, you really are new at this. That's called the deep dish. Anyone who's anyone plays that. Even the blue blocker? Hey, hey, not so loud, kid. You don't want to get on the blue blockers list. Now hurry up and make your first move. What? How did you... Ugh, try this. No. No. It's not possible. Whoa, looky here, folks. Last year's runner-up champion, Peer Pressure Polly, has already been eliminated. And in a record-breaking six moves, her opponent, I don't recognize him, folks. Do we have a new prodigy on our hands? We're now 36 hours into this tournament, and one by one, rows of contestants have been flushed by some of the best players in the entire tri-state area. Behind closed doors, the blue blocker continues to embarrass her opponents with reckless abandon, using her signature strategy, the deep dish no olives. But she could have some surprise competition because from out of nowhere, an inexperienced player who uses his pill addiction to be magically good at a game without really studying anything is easily trouncing some of the best players in the entire country. Let's have a quick word with him. What is your name, mysterious stranger? Well, and where did you learn to play this majestic game so flawlessly? Who is your mentor? Oh, well, that would be. And are you prepared to go up against the blue blocker who once paid a hitman to assassinate her opponent using a fake car accident four months later just out of spite? Oh, uh, well, I... Incredible, folks! We have a new victim for the blue blocker here tonight, and their match is going to start right now. Hello? I'm here to face you, blue blocker. I'm not scared of you or your assassins, which is kind of extra for a Connect Four tournament, honestly. Hello, son. No. No, it can't be. Mom? You're the blue blocker? That's right. 
I've long kept it a secret in the hopes that you would finally face me. Where the hell is my father? At home. I think he said he was going to take a nap after eating a sandwich. You monster. You know we're out of bread. It's your move, son. If you really want that seven dollars, you'll have to judiciously vanquish my columns with connecting rows of at least four pieces. Do you think you have the stomach for that? Ah, I see you have elected the deep dish extra anchovy strategy. A wise move against any other opponent. I'm not afraid of you, Mom. I will defeat you in my dad's honor. Your father has no honor. He prefers Scrabble. Don't take out his insanity on me. This game is heating up, folks. The Blue Blocker has implemented some of the most harrowing attack strategies in Connect 4 history. The Raging Domino, the Upside Down Smiley Face, and even the Molly Ringwald. But so far, this fresh-faced challenger has beat back her onslaught, though only just by a razor's edge. <laughs> it's over, William. No matter where you go next, I will win. What are you doing? Why are you staring at the ceiling? It helps me if I visualize the pieces in my head. Why? The board is right in front of you. Just use that. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. No, it's not possible. How did... Connect four, mother. I don't believe it. He's actually done it, folks, from out of nowhere. He's defeated the blue blocker with a strategy... I've never even seen anything like it. It's unbelievable. It's inconceivable. It's... Uh, John? What? Who are you talking to? You're just over there by yourself at this desk. There's not even a microphone or anything. Oh. Well. Uh, yes. Coming up next is our Clue Tournament in Georgia, where one lucky person will win the grand prize of one expired movie ticket voucher and 10% off their concessions. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics from the San Francisco Bay Area. I am John Gurney. I'm the box office columnist for Adam Tickets and editor-in-chief of Cinemaholics.com. And from Pittsburgh slash Allegheny County, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. It's Will Ashton. Hey, what's up? From Kansas City, she is the film editor for The Pitch with bylines at Slash Film, Crooked Marquee, RogerDeber.com, and more. It's Abby Jesse. Hello. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com. You can also find written reviews and other podcasts to enjoy. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. If you would like to get some sweet, sweet merch, just go on to cinemaholics.com or our Patreon and you'll find our merch page. It's there. It's got stuff. And we're selling stuff, everybody. We're selling shirts and hoodies and mugs. It's happening. Let's get into our off topics. Uh, first off, Extra Milestone. Every week we have Extra Milestone, our film anniversary bonus podcast hosted by Sam Nolan. Will, you were on the show. What did you and Sam talk about? Uh, yeah, we talked about three different films that um, I wish I could say they had some connective tissue, but they didn't. Uh, those three films were David Lynch's The Elephant Man, uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours, and then Abbas, um, I, I don't think I can pronounce his name correctly. Is it 
Kate, uh, do you happen to know off the top of your head? Kirostami, I think. Kirostami, okay. Yeah, it's Abbas. It's Kirostami. I think so. Or Kiarostami. Yeah, Kiarostami. Yeah, Abbas Kirostami's close up. So those are the three films we got to discuss. All of them are really good. I was telling John um, after we recorded that I think this is like the best block of movies, maybe that we that I've talked about at least on Extra Milestone. So I was really happy with those three films, and I hope people enjoy the conversation as well. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, those all are pretty good movies. I haven't seen Close Up, but I've heard incredible, incredible things. Mm-hmm. That Extra Milestone episode is available right now on our podcast feed. If you'd like to find more Extra Milestone episodes, there's also a separate podcast feed just for that. So you can subscribe to that as well. All right, time for the big one, the big off topic. Uh, we just got through here in America a pretty consequential election. It was like an election week and it's the kind of thing it has a lot of implications for us uh, the culture and so as we're recording this the election has been called and joe biden has defeated donald trump and will be elected president come january so it's been kind of strange because like this really got dragged out and i was curious i was going to ask you will and abby kind of how how you've been sort of like processing this through entertainment Right. Like I, I can say for me, I've been really distracted because of all this stuff. Uh, I've either been working or I've been kind of keeping up with the election stuff. The only thing I watched during the week was one of the things we're talking about this week, which is the Queen's Gambit, which was really more of a distraction sort of thing. But yeah, Abby, I don't know about you. How, how has this week gone for you on a personal level, on an entertainment level? Where are you at? Oh man, it's been, it's been a roller coaster. Um, I, made the choice to kind of unplug as much as I could on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, I took the day off and uh, spent Tuesday night with my parents and uh, took the day off on Wednesday as well, just trying to not look at social media or cable news uh, for the most part. Um, And I'm trying to remember, it it feels like I was kind of in a fugue state for a lot of it. But um, last night after the election was called, I thought I might try to celebrate by watching um, uh, Heidi Schreck's Amazon special, uh, funnily enough, directed by Mariel Heller, who is in The Queen's Gambit, uh, what the Constitution means to me. And that was actually a really good thing to uh, to follow it up with, because it was it's a it's a, a one woman show where Shrek talks about her experience giving uh, speeches about the Constitution at American Legion halls uh, to win competitions and earn scholarship money for college. Um, and she kind of reflects on her feelings then as an adult with kind of a more full knowledge of how different parts of American freedoms have impacted her family. Um, and, uh, specifically kind of the, uh, the American government's legacy of not taking, uh, the safety of women very seriously. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting show in that it is funny and warm, but also kind of takes the government to task as well as giving it giving, giving kind of a glimmer of hope. So that's, that's kind of where I found myself emotionally, uh, yesterday. And so it was kind of a nice reminder of like, you know, things are, this is a a net good. It feels like a net good, uh, for me and for a lot of folks I know, but like the work isn't done yet. So I liked that. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a very divisive time. There are a ton of people who are feeling really upset about the election results or they're feeling uh, like there's fraud going on and all kinds of stuff like that. And so I'm sure they're having a much different time than I'd say all three of us. But that said, yeah, I, for me, 
I've been thinking a lot about how we're kind of moving out of really a chaotic time into what could possibly be kind of a boring time politically. And I'm curious how that's going to affect our entertainment and how we're going to kind of process the last four years as people who were not fans of the president. And yeah, it's obviously that stuff has an effect on the movies and the TV shows that are made. And I'm very curious to see how all that's going to play out. But all right, what about you, Will? How have you been... uh, I don't know if distracting yourself is the right word, but uh, yeah, what about your week? The, the, how was the election week for you? Well, I mean, certainly not stress-free. I have to assume for a lot of people it was, no matter what side you landed on, it was a pretty uh, intensive week mentally and emotionally. But um, yeah, I mean, for me, I just was uh, just doing my work for the most part, checking and rechecking the uh, New York Times um calendar that they have on their site. And then when I had the chance, I got to watch uh, Boy State, which is a documentary I believe you covered um, either in your Sundance coverage or a few weeks afterwards when it came to um, both actually. Apple TV. Well, in August, uh, we covered it again, I think. I forget who we talked about it with, but yeah. Um, was it um, Charlie? I forget exactly. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think I was quite as strong on the film as you were, but I do think it is a very well-made film. I, I, I think it's it might be a little bit airtight to a fault in that, like, I kind of wanted to hear more about the experience of Boise as far as like what it meant to them, like as far as like, did it just feel like a Lord of the Flies situation to them or was it kind of more emotionally uh, resonant or did it feel like that, like after the fact, like when they were moved from it, because we follow up with them afterwards, like, does it have like the same implications to them or do they just kind of see it's like, well, that was a week. Um, uh, but I think, I mean, just the fact they got so lucky with following uh, Stephen from the beginning and just seeing his journey, I think was what made it work in my opinion. And then also just having such uh, like outspoken and um, clearly passionate characters, not characters, they're people, uh, teenagers. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I know you were saying that Renee, I think was your favorite of the four main uh, central points of the film. And I can certainly see why I think after Steven, he was probably the most interesting for me as well. But um, yeah, I think it's a good film. I mean, it, it's weird for me to like, focus away from politics to watch something that's also political. But um, for me that I, I see it less as a movie about like, this is what politics is and more of a documentary, just like exploring masculinity on the whole and just like what like young men deem important. And then like the sense of like, you know, like ironic kind of like um, the swaying of what they think isn't important, but there's clearly like a lot of passion and intensity underneath boiling out. And um, yeah, it's well done and, and definitely some of the best, documentary cinematography i've seen in a long time so i would recommend it as well yeah i mean I, I can only echo as i have so many times that i'm a big fan of that movie and it is it is interesting like because it's a documentary about what these boys like do election wise over the course of a week and will you kind of did that it's like a microcosm of this week i guess for yeah all of us did you ever have a chance to see boy state abby um, I did. I actually reviewed it for Crooked Marquee around the time it came out on uh, Apple TV. I think, yeah, Apple TV Plus. Um, yeah, I, I really liked it. I feel like it is a, uh, it's such an interesting little microcosm of like the the human patterns that tend to define the ways that democracy works. Like even just like showing up in such young people who want to do good, like there's always going to be some doofuses who want to stunt. There's always going to be some genuine people who try their best and there's always going to be some people who like just really want to stand in the way. And uh, I think it, it shows some really fascinating characters. And um, for the most part, I was just, I was so impressed by a lot of the boys and you could kind of see 
for some of them, you could kind of see like what their futures might potentially look like, like based on the personality traits in the backgrounds that that are that are on display. And so I am as much as I liked the film, I am super curious to like just kind of wait out and see if we hear more from uh, from especially from Stephen and Renee, um, because they were both such strong personalities, but clearly so, so driven and such good speakers and um very well organized. I was I was shocked by how well organized those boys were. Yeah, Boys State Two, uh, probably not. Like a uh, like a Seven Up. Yes, please. Like I would. Yeah. Follow up. Yeah. Boys State Rise of Renee. Yes, please. I was yeah. I was curious if it was going to impact any of their political careers, either positively or negatively. When they, I'm assuming at least one or two of them will actually get into politics uh, long term, and I'm curious if the movie will have any ramifications moving forward. But obviously, we can't know that now. I mean, I I suspect the like. Uh, basic antagonist of the film probably will because you know as one of the reasons Renee is my favorite is because the way he sort of sums up that guy's skills a politician um, not to spoil it but it I think it's pretty brilliant and how it kind of sums all that yeah. stuff up so I mean that's like Lucy Wells referring to I didn't want to like give away who you seem to be implying but yeah I mean I wasn't sure if he would be affected by it in the long term or not I mean I, knowing knowing how things are now they just say it's a hit piece or something so who knows no, I, I think it could be positive. Like another thing that that springs to my mind, there was a, a Netflix documentary that came out a few years ago called, I think, Knock Down the House that yeah, was about yeah, um, really yeah female candidates. And yeah, it, it's sort of the AOC origin story. Like if she ever runs for president, like this is her dreams from my father. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, also Cori Bush is pretty, pretty significantly represented in that movie too. And she loses the race in that film, but obviously has won the race now. So yeah. it's- she's she's on the rise as well so i think you know long term i don't want to like project that far ahead because you know these boys are still like maybe going to college i don't know it's there's there are a few years down the road but i think if we hear more from them in the future i think this will be an interesting thing to revisit right and then also i was thinking back um i talked about all in a couple weeks back and just seeing stacy abrams in the news so prominently this week is just interesting you know having seen that film so recently, just to, you know, see her once again in the news was pretty, in this case, uh, inspiring and, and for the better, I feel. But um, nonetheless, I mean, if you're looking for something politically relevant that just came out on streaming, that would be one to, see, to seek out, I'd say. Agreed. Agreed. Well, that was our election week. And I know I've, I'm definitely looking forward to finally checking out what the Constitution means to me. Abby, that's something that's been on my radar for sure. And I'm glad to hear that it's it's a good watch. That said, uh, our, last week. We had a listener voicemail uh, question for you all. We asked, what are your favorite Sean Connery films? Now, this was kind of the unfortunate uh, side effect of Sean Connery's passing. We decided we wanted to, we talked about Sean Connery last week a little bit, some of our favorite films from him. And then we turned it, of course, to the listeners as we like to do. And here is a response from username Arish. Thank you for posting this. Uh, He meant a lot to me because as I was growing up, uh, my father used to take me to watch James Bond movies. And for him and for me, Sean Connery was the quintessential Bond. So we really, really enjoyed that. That part of my childhood feels like has been taken away. So I feel extremely sad uh, at his passing away. In terms of movies, for me, the quintessential Sean Connery movies are Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, sorry, not Diamonds Are Forever, uh, Thunderball. So Thunderball and Goldfinger for the longest time were the two top Sean Connery movies for me. And uh, they're really great. Uh, Another movie that I like a lot is uh, You Only Live Twice. This movie just has a 
personal kind of significance and when I watched it during my life. And so I always go to this movie when I'm looking for kind of to uh, to remember my childhood again, if you will. Right? So I, I just probably the Bond movie I saw the most uh, when I was growing up. So yeah, those are the Bond movies uh, from Sean Connery that uh, I absolutely love. Um, Goldfinger, Thunderball, and You Only Live Twice. And then uh, post uh, James Bond, The Untouchables, of course, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Rock, and The Hunt for Red October. I think The Hunt for Red October is one of his best performances and a fantastic movie to boot. So really enjoyed that as well. All right. Thank you so much, Avish, for letting us know some of your favorite Sean Connery films. Great selection there. And a few that we didn't even mention in last week. Um, you mentioned a few James Bond films that we didn't get into. But uh, it's kind of sad because as we talk about this, we have another uh, death that we just found out about uh, right before recording this. Um, literally like minutes before we started recording, we found out that Alex Trebek passed away at the age of 80. And uh, it's very sad. It's very sudden. Uh, still kind of processing it. And we might... If we have time next week, talk about it a little bit. Of course, uh, he's a, a huge icon um, for Canadians. I correct myself because I said American icon and Will and Abby promptly corrected me. Uh, but he's, he's an icon to a lot of us uh, around the globe. And yeah, that's a tough loss as well. Now, if you want to leave a listener voicemail, we have another question we're going to do for next week. All you have to do is check out the Swell app, which you can find a link to that in the show notes. And you can find our account, Cinemaholics, and uh, we have these prompts and we ask these questions. You can find that and leave your own voicemail. We want to hear what you have to say uh, about the kind of topic of the week. This week with the, it's it's the end of kind of an era, you know, um, you know, the last four years we kind of mentioned have been kind of insane and they've been very dramatic and I don't know if interesting is the right word, but it's it's definitely been a very unique period of time. So our question is, who should direct the inevitable post-Trump movie? So we were kind of going back and forth. It's like, well, is, is it who who would be Trump, I guess? And, you know, Will kind of mentioned that there is like the Comey rule movie that kind of came out that nobody cared about. But in terms of like who should actually direct a movie that sort of sums up the last four years, very curious who you all might pick for that. I have a feeling, you know, some people, the first thing that would come to mind is like maybe Aaron Sorkin, maybe David Fincher, Adam McKay, uh, Will, who, who was the first person you thought of for that? Um, well, when I think back on like where the movies that defined the Trump era for me, I think of two films. So I think of, um, the Death of Stalin, which was the, uh, Armando Anucci, Anucci film, the guy who did Veep as well. Yeah. Which I think is a pretty obvious answer. And I think, you know, obviously he could be good at like balancing the like different per personalities that are like surrounding Trump and like just kind of showing the chaos that's therein. Um, another obvious one would be like the co-umbrellas just for like a bunch of like blowhard dumb people just doing crimes and <laughs> and just like kind of running amok makes sense to me. But um, the other film that also came to mind was um, Uncut Gems. I feel like the chaotic kind of energy of that film and just the like hyper intensity of it has been memefied a lot for an obvious reason that just it just kind of sums up this era in addition to being a really good film. So I'm sure the Safdie brothers, especially being such a New York based uh, pair of filmmakers, would have a lot of fun if they ever did make a uh, Trump biopic. But I feel like that's an interesting choice. Hmm, I like that. The, um, the filmmaker who would describe emotionally what it feels like is probably Gaspar Noe, <laughs> uh, which I don't think would ever wow. happen. Um, heck, man. <laughs> but um who I'd really want to see probably is uh, Yorgos Lanthimos. I think I think he would probably be the one that would be the most entertaining for me, at least, to see if he if we were to get 
a biopic from him. But I also was thinking, and I don't really have a way to back this up, but one thought that came to mind was, what would Lynn Ramsey's Trump biopic be? Just huh. like probably like, very esoteric, right? Which I would prefer as opposed to um, something that's a little bit more on the nose as uh, most political biopics tend to be. But um, you know, I and in any case, no matter if we get one or not, I don't really want one. <laughs> just to, to be perfectly blunt, just because I just feel like we live this for so yeah. long that like I don't I don't see any like entertainment value coming out of this. I just kind of want to like separate it and just move on. But if we do get one, like you said, it's going to be inevitable. Like. Those are just the names that come to mind. A lot of them are obvious. Some are, I guess, a little out there, but those are the filmmakers that came to mind for me. You're bringing like a real like edgy art house energy to to your selections. I like it. Um, What about what about you, Abby? Did any come to mind for you? Um, Are you kind of feeling the same way of like, not that you want this, but if we're going to have it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Not if I want this, but if we're going to have it, we should at least make it artistically interesting. Will had some really wildly creative suggestions that I really liked. Um, I feel like Armando Iannucci is a good good choice in terms of just the the level of absurdity, um, like the uh, the press conference stuff about Four Seasons uh, um, total landscaping coming oh, up I from yesterday. Like I was very... gonna, oh, I was going to put that in the Connect Four thing. That's where the tournament's supposed to be. Oh, and I forgot. <laughs> that's oh, that's amazing. I, yeah, I think huge. that I, uh, I was thinking we could do it at the uh, Four Seasons Brewery in Latrobe, PA. But that was my pitch. But ah. I forgot to do that. Um, but Sorry, case, everyone. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, that's I, I think that that felt to me like a joke right out of right out of Veep or uh, or in the loop. So I could I can see that working really well, um, like almost too well. Uh, I um, I also I, I like the suggestion of the Safties, too, although my my thought is I think maybe what the Safties should do is do like a movie specifically about 80s, 90s Trump, because I feel like that aesthetic would really match kind of the yeah the vision yeah. of New York that they are the best at, at, at uh, portraying. Um, mm-hmm. but I think maybe in terms of like how it feels currently, and I think particularly if you're, if you're thinking about like marginalized people, I feel like, uh, Boots Riley might be a good pick. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed, oh, sorry to bother you. And, um, I'd I feel be down like there should sure. be some really, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that could be really fun and just like completely insane. I think it might potentially capture the, uh, the chaos of the last four years in a way that would be like both, uh. I don't know if inspiring is the right word, but I, I think it would it would both kind of light a fire under you and it would also be entertaining. So and he's one of the few filmmakers I feel like could genuinely heighten it in a way that like everything seems so heightened now. Like, who could you get to heighten it even yeah. more for a movie? And I could see Boots doing that for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, if nothing else, like if there are, I, I think the the drug trips that I'm sure inevitably would have have happened and we just haven't heard about um, would be awfully fun to watch if you directed them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh First person that came to my mind was probably Spike Lee, um, and kind of for the same reason you were th- you were kind of getting to Will about like the movies that kind of sum up the last four years, and I think The Five Bloods is a really interesting one. Uh, I was also thinking of when you mentioned that uh, really both of Jordan Peele's films, especially Us, really like captures kind of like yeah. a dark mood that a lot of us can probably find pretty relatable. But yeah, in terms of one of the other persons I, I thought of, like somebody who could really like capture like the whiz bang energy is like if we could get a Steven Soderbergh like at his best, I would be pretty interested in that. But at the same time, I recognize he's definitely a director who sometimes his movies feel a little slight. So I don't know if he would necessarily be the it, it just depends on which Soderbergh we're getting. Right. If you had a Soderbergh who is kind of like mixing his like high flying bird energy with something like Oceans 
we could get something really creative and interesting and unique, but who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll probably, we'll probably have like a, a field day of films like that in the near future. Yeah. I mean, also we didn't mention the two like obvious ones that people propose, which are Adam McKay and uh, Oliver Stone, which seem more inevitable and not that they would be the ones that make it, but I'd rather not see it from either just because I feel like I can see yeah, that yeah. film in my head already. And I'm like, I don't, there's nothing there that really intrigues me, but I mean, if that comes along, I wouldn't be surprised. I did mention Adam. Yeah. McKay. Same. Oh, sorry. My bad. My bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I was telling you guys earlier, I'm like one of maybe a handful of people in the world who genuinely enjoyed Vice. But yeah, I feel like I could see that. I, I, yeah, I can see that movie in my head and there's nothing new or interesting about it. I think there's nothing about it that wouldn't feel kind of obligatory. So, yeah. All right. Well, we want to know what you all listeners think. So go on the Swole app, find Cinemaholics and let us know. Who do you think should, who do you think should direct the inevitable Trump movie if we have to have it? All right, we have a lot of reviews to get to, uh, more than usual, so let's get started. Our first review is the only one that all three of us have seen, is a new horror film called The Dark and the Wicked. The Dark and the Wicked is written and directed by Brian Bertino. He's made a few films, uh, I think probably best known for The Strangers. Uh, he wrote and directed that film, and it's sequel. The first Strangers came out in 2008, so it's been 12 years since that film and I, I didn't see strangers pray at night and i don't really remember what the conversation was around that i don't know i don't think it was supposed to be any good but this is definitely one of the the few films like or i guess this is the first time i feel like bertino's come out with something that has had some critical like interest in it this premiered at the fantasia international film festival uh, which i know abby you were you attended uh, virtually if i recall and it's being released by irlje films it stars Marin Ireland and Michael Abbott Jr. Uh, and I should say Marin Ireland, I think the most recent thing I saw her in was uh, the, uh, not the boys, uh, Umbrella Academy. That's what it was, season two on Netflix. She was one of the newer characters in that. And then Will pointed this out to me that Michael Abbott Jr. was in The Death of Dick Long. I knew I recognized him, but I, I couldn't put my finger on where I'd seen him before. That said, the film also stars Xander Berkeley, Lynn Andrews, Julia Oliveira Touchstone, some relatively unknown actors, and it's kind of a, a small-scale film in a lot of ways, but it is a pretty spooky uh, horror film here, and very curious uh, to get underway with this one. So, Will, why don't you describe The Dark and the Wicked for us? What is this movie about, and what did you think? Yeah, so as you mentioned, oh, just to clarify, I believe he... Uh... Bernanto, he didn't direct the sequel to Strangers, but he produced it just so um, I mentioned that. I don't know if you said he directed it or not, but um, in any case. Oh, did he? OK, I, I thought he at least wrote it. So, yeah, I but... think he, he might have co-wrote it, but he didn't direct it. Um, OK, good point. But um, yeah, I mean, the plot of this film, by and large, fairly simple in that we follow um, two adult children um, who are returning home. Their dad is pretty much bedridden at this point. Well, he is bedridden. He's literally bedridden at this point. And the mother is uh, just aloof, kind of out of it at this point. Psychologically, she seems to be extremely depressed. And both children are trying to uh, basically comfort her, acknowledging that her, her husband and the dad are uh, on the way out. It could be a matter of days at this point. And um, as they do so, uh, things definitely take a turn for the worse when uh, the the mother in this case seems to be haunted by some unknown and festering paranormal activity that's going on that is basically uh, consuming her and then um, ultimately leaving these two children with uh, 
a pretty devastating turn of events that only gets more and more uh, disturbed as things go along throughout the week, which, um, yeah, I mean, that's like my vague way, I guess, of describing the film without getting into more in-depth spoilers. All right. And what did you think, Will? Did you like it? Um, So I guess based because like I didn't know anything about this going into it. I had seen The Strangers. I remember liking it. I don't remember too much about it otherwise. I remember just thinking it was well done. Um, so I didn't have any real expectations for this other than the reviews being strong. But it seemed to be that you and a lot of critics were like suggesting that like it's pretty like intense, like there's a lot of like graphic material in it. And I guess what surprised me was that by and large, I found this film kind of forgettable uh, in a way that I wasn't really anticipating. And uh, I, I was a little bit uh, annoyed at myself, I guess, for that. I don't know if it's just because of the week we were having, but um yeah, I mean, I, I felt like the beginning of it was really solid as far as like setting up the dread and the paranoia of it, and especially showing the mom's just sense of like uh, unnerve and just like knowing something really bad is going to happen and just seeing pretty early on a lot of bad things happen. But then once we get to, I would say, like maybe the midpoint of the film, I just feel like it kind of drags on longer than it should be because it feels like a kind of like short film, a kind of moody short film that got extended into a 90 minute feature. And I think that's fine, but it just kind of, I think after a while, it just tested my patience to the point where I, I wasn't as invested in the second half as I was with the first. And by the end of it, I was just a little bit more indifferent than I ultimately expected to be. But I think as a piece of filmmaking, similar to Strangers, I think it's well done. I think it's effectively creepy throughout, but it didn't have like a strong hold on me in a way that I was hoping or maybe even anticipating. And I think for that, it left me more underwhelmed than I ultimately anticipated. Yeah, I guess to what you're saying, I'd say the middle part is definitely forgettable for the most part in terms of like the scares, because I, I wrote in my review for The Spool, I think that the film probably peaks in the beginning. And I I didn't I thought that was pretty memorable, like that first thing that happens, which we won't spoil. And then I thought the very end of it, too, was pretty intense, like almost kind of matches that. But all right, Abby Olchesi, what, what did you think of The Dark and the Wicked? Oh boy. <laughs> so we talked about this a little bit before and I, I have like my emotional reaction to this movie was very strongly negative. So I'm going to try and parse that out from like the actual like logistics of how this movie works and what I think doesn't doesn't work. Um, I know a lot of other folks have have mentioned uh, reviewers have mentioned that the middle part of this movie kind of drags. And I, I would I think I would tend to agree that uh, the beginning and the end are, are easily the strongest points. Um, I, yeah, I found this movie just very bleak and oppressive. And I know that's kind of Brian Bertino's stock and trade, and it's definitely not a thing I'm into. Um, I, I feel like there is not, there's, there are some interesting um, potential themes that kind of lurk beneath the surface of this movie. Like there are some thoughts about uh, inherited trauma or inherited um, mental condition or mental illness that uh, I think kind of reminded me of movies like Relic and Hereditary, which are both pretty emotionally intense and both better than this movie. Um, and I, I feel like those, those ideas are there. And I think the fact that it is shot on Bertino's own family farm, I think kind of adds to that idea, but nothing, we don't really go to anywhere super meaningful with those ideas. They just kind of are around. Um, and there's also sort of a, a lack of logic about how the, uh, the actual monster itself works that kind of takes that, uh, takes that idea away. There are a couple of, of characters who are affected by 
this sort of possessing force that kind of knocked down the idea of it being kind of relegated to specifically this family and their shared history, which I think would make it a lot more powerful. Um, but for the most part, yeah, there's just, there's a total lack of, of hope or possibility in this movie that really, really bothered me. Um, I think the, uh, the, the atmospheric elements of it are, are I think, effective. I think Marin Ireland is really good. She's very grounded in this performance and I think probably has the, uh, the, the most interesting emotional arc of, uh, of any of the characters. Um, I just don't think that the movie quite lives up to the, it's, it's not, yeah, the movie doesn't quite live up to the movie that she wants to be in, which I think is a much better film. It's very interesting because I, I, in my notes, I have a lot of like the same words you're using, Abby. Like I literally wrote no hope <laughs> and very oppressive. And yeah, I think it's interesting because I agree with that a lot of what you're saying, but I think for some reason I'm skewing in the other direction and I actually enjoyed this movie despite, um, I don't know if actually it enjoys uh, fair, but I appreciate this movie a lot for sure. Uh, First off, I agree. Relic is a better film. I'd say Hereditary is a better film, even though I'm not the biggest fan of Hereditary. But it is interesting that Relic came out a few months ago, and both of these films do have very stark messages for how children take care or are supposed to take care of their parents. And that's something that kind of hits home in a year where the elderly are most vulnerable right now, right? And something I appreciate about this film that I, I I do feel like it doesn't have that same vein of a horror film that ends with like redemption. We've been getting a lot of that the last few years. And I think because in some ways, audiences kind of need that right now. They need to feel like even though it seems like all hope is lost, there can be a semblance of a happy ending. And I think the dark side of that is that it's, it's, it almost is feeling repetitive. We're getting so many horror films that are about processing very deep traumas and grief. And in a way, they're starting to blur together. And uh, some of them are starting to feel like they're all sort of preaching the same message. And what do I, what I do appreciate about Rotino, you know, love it or hate what he says with his movies. I do think it is something different. And in this case, I happen to appreciate what he has to say about oppression on people who are very wishy-washy, who are very passive, this like callous side of humanity. And I think it's because like these characters we see in this movie, specifically these siblings, they're not bad people, you know, they're they're not really presented as like mustache twirling, you know, super selfish. They're presented as kind of everybody, as this very unremarkable class of people who just don't want to stick their necks out more than they need to. And again, it's not that they're bad, but what I appreciate about this movie is just, it's sort of like a commentary on how the horrors of like what we are in action are pretty, they have pretty bad consequences. And so I don't know, there's a lot I would still have to parse with this movie, but I found myself thinking about it a lot. Uh, I, I had a different experience, I guess you did, Will, where I, I didn't find much of it forgettable except for the middle, which I agree kind of drags and brings this film down a lot uh, in those terms. But I felt trapped by this movie. I I thought this script was very genuine. I liked a lot of the dialogue. It felt like real people talking to each other. And yeah, I think the, the the cinematography is pretty creative and the scares are pretty well done. I don't think it's very scary necessarily, but there are like two moments where I was like gasping a little bit and I had a hard time like watching the screen. So 
that said, yeah, I think I like this one uh, quite a bit better than you two, but uh, I can definitely see where, where it's falling short in some regards. So, Will Ashton, what are your final thoughts on The Dark and the Wicked, and how would you grade this one? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like I'm literally just right in the middle of you two in that, like, I recognize a lot of what Abby is saying, and I, I think I generally agree in that, like, I, it does feel like a lesser version of the type of grief-driven horror film that we've been seeing a lot recently and ultimately I think have seen better elsewhere, or at least it felt a little bit more creative when we saw in previous endeavors. But with this film, I mean, I do, I think what you're saying is sound. I do agree with you that I think that's at the heart of the film. And I think the way he goes about it is very evocative. And I think visually it's very striking. And I I do appreciate the performances a lot as well and that they're able to channel the uh, ingrained humanity without it ever being too flashy or insincere. I, I kind of wish I was invited a little bit more into their lives as far as just getting a better sense of who they were beyond just the like straightforward narrative that they're portraying here. And I think that's, I guess, ultimately where it feels a little bit flimsy to me. But uh, as far as it just being a uh, chill night, well, not chill, but like moody and kind of chilling sort of uh, atmosphere and dread driven horror film, I think it's effective for what it's trying to do. It's not a film going to be reflecting on, obviously, because um. Like I said, I didn't really find it particularly memorable. I had to rewatch the ending to make sure I watched the ending <laughs> this morning. Um, so I guess I had a much different experience with the ending than you did. But um, as far as the movie itself, I think it's it, it does what it needs to do. I think it's effective as far as just being a um, unsettling horror film. And I really do like the uh, performance from the mom. I think she's really good at capturing that that sense of uh, terror without it being uh, overdone. But um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like a admirable B minus. It's definitely a weird film to watch this week on Saturday, but nonetheless, that's, that's Cinemaholics. <laughs> that's yeah. That's what we do here. All right. I have the old chessy. Uh, what are your, some of your final thoughts and how would you grade? Um, John, I, I, I appreciated what you said about it being kind of different and uh kind of if you if you do sort of look at like if you're if you're a person who believes in like the oppressive force of evil i think that there is sort of a a reality about the way that it's portrayed here so i i do appreciate that 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 there's certain there's a certain kind of ethos there that i think is probably grimly realistic um but yeah on a personal level that's that's not a movie that i want to watch um <laughs> and and some people can i mean some people can get on that wavelength i just found that I really couldn't. Um, but I think, and that's, that's enough, I think to bump it up a little bit in my estimation to kind of appreciate what's going on there. Um, but I also agree with Will that it would have been more interesting to kind of see a little bit more of this family's lives than we get, um, at the very least kind of better understand their relationship to each other. And there are a few elements that I think kind of hint at something deeper that could have been even more interesting. Um, so with all of that and my previous comments taken into consideration, I think I would give it a C plus. Oh, wow. That's a lot higher than I thought you were going to get. I thought this was going to be like a C minus D plus, but, um, yeah, I, yeah. To Abby, Abby, to your point, I would have such a hard time recommending this to anybody. Like it's such, it is kind of that sort of film where for most people, I think that they are going to watch it and be like, why did I have to watch this? Like, there are so many other things I could have done instead. So I totally, totally understand that. I just think for me personally, I was able to, apparently I had some takeaways that are unique to just me and and maybe some select people who give this one a shot. But yeah, I, I'm like a solid B on this. You know, I, I even though I can't say that it's anywhere as good as some of the other horror films of this same sort of 
I don't know, subgenre is the right word, but what we've been talking about in terms of like processing grief through horror and that sort of thing. I, I think that there are some flourishes here that I do appreciate the uh, kind of the angle this film has on atheism, where it sort of doesn't demonize atheism uh, the way some of these horror films tend to do, where they sort of like, uh, I, and I could be wrong about that, but I guess I didn't have that sort of read on the film. And then also, uh, like His House, which we talked about last week, they had another good explanation for why they can't just leave. Um, there's actually like a real like anxiety, like we have to we have to stay here. We can't just sort of like pack up and run away from the haunting. And so I, I'm always a sucker for that sort of thing. So solid B for me on The Dark and the Wicked. It's available to stream right now on demand. And it does have good critical ratings. Um, I guess some people are just like in the mood for some dark, oppressive horror. But if that's not you, you might want to avoid this one for now. All right, let's get into our next review. This one is not technically a movie. It's called The Queen's Gambit, which is a new miniseries on Netflix. And the reason we're talking about this, even though it's a miniseries, we do talk about miniseries sometimes on the show. I really wanted this to be the featured review. I think it would have. this would have been really great for all three of us. But uh, it's just me and Abby reviewing The Queen's Gambit. I've seen all seven episodes, and Abby has seen three episodes. So we're not going to give anything away, of course, but we are going to get into the premise of this one and what we think generally. Uh, I'll be able to give more of a retrospective on the whole thing. And I have to say, I feel very comfortable talking about this on a podcast called Cinemaholics just because this thing is way more cinematic than a lot of movies that I've seen lately. And so I have no qualms about discussing it sort of in this format. So Abby, old Chessie, what is the Queen's Gambit about? And what do you think so far with this one? Uh, so the Queen's Gambit follows uh, Beth Harmon, who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, who arrives at an orphanage uh, after a car accident and uh, the, a car accident that claims the life of her mother, who she's been living with. And so while she's in the orphanage, she uh, kind of befriends a... Uh, quiet, stoic janitor played by Bill Camp, uh, who teaches her how to play chess. And she uh, displays like a real aptitude for learning it. Um, the only catch is that uh, because this is the 1950s, uh, the uh, the orphanage has, uh, they, they, they give out uh, sedatives <laughs> along with their vitamins uh, pretty regularly. Yeah, tranquilizers, yeah. because those were, you know, a thing that you did back then. And it kind of messes with her ability to uh, to play the game she develops an addiction because the tranquilizers help her kind of calm her mind and visualize all of the rules um but she is adopted by a couple um and the the woman of the couple is um marielle heller um thank you yes the the woman of the couple is played by marielle heller and uh they uh the the husband quickly uh abandons them both and um because Beth starts entering uh, chess tournaments and winning money, uh, her adoptive mother sees kind of a potential payday or like some kind of financial stability payoff. And Beth kind of becomes the, uh, the breadwinner of the, of the family by doing that. Uh, all the while, her demons are kind of continually building up inside her. And uh, I imagine by the end of the series, there's going to be a reckoning with that. Um, and John, you can kind of let me know. <laughs> where that where that heads i'm i'm in the middle of episode three currently so i am i'm getting there great episode yeah i'd say every episode to me was like really really great i think the last episode it's not weak necessarily but it does 
feel a little bit weaker than some of the previous episodes. I'm I'm a little undecided on the ending and if it really nails it, but and generally speaking, I think this miniseries is definitely my favorite miniseries since Chernobyl, for sure. It helps that it was written and directed by Scott Frank. He did every episode. So it really does feel very continuous. It really feels like this thing has a beginning, middle, end, and it's not episodic. It, not that that's inherently bad, but for the purpose of this story, I think that we get such a great run through of this very unique character. We should say The Queen's Gambit is based on a novel by Walter Tevis, which came out in 1983. And, you know, kind of getting into what you're talking about, Abby, it's it really is a story about like your typical like genius, you know, at a game, kind of like a sports underdog story. And the first part of this miniseries is really fun because you get to see this like person come out of nowhere and have and outplay a, a lot of men in a very gender uh, one-sided situation where people really underestimate her, they look down on her. And we watch her journey and the way she grows into a better and better player and the, I really appreciate the lessons that she learns along the way. There are some unique ways that they bring the rules of chess into a cinematic fashion. Uh, the cinematographer is uh, Steven Mesler, who is so great at like making chess interesting. And uh, part of the part of what helps is like they have a variety of locations, right? So like the first place is a very humble, like high school kind of setting, and then it like in scale it gets bigger and bigger we go to uh, more of like a convention center and then we're in las vegas and then we have like a kind of more exotic you know like mexican hotel and then we you know i won't give away like the very end but like there's a very very different setting uh in the seventh episode and all the while i really feel like this beth Harmon character is so unique so well written and she has like very significant flaws, but she doesn't feel like she never feels like a character whose flaws are written. It just sort of feels like of a piece. And I I just really loved the heck out of this thing. What did you what do you think so far, Abby? You just like, are you really digging it or how is it comparing with you to like other kind of stuff in this genre? Yeah, I, I am enjoying it a lot. And there's a ton of style behind this thing. And I think it is helpful that we have the same like kind of director creator behind working behind all of them so that it's it it feels really more like a seven hour movie um, than it does just a miniseries. And I think that's that's kind of neat. We don't get a lot of those too much anymore. Um, and I think the performances are really interesting. Uh, I think uh, Anya Taylor-Joy is kind of fascinating as 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 Beth, because at this point, at least in the series, she still feels like a bit of a cipher. I think it's it's super interesting to me that uh, because she has grown up in such a kind of cold and removed environment in the orphanage, that she doesn't quite yet know how to exist in the world. And she's still kind of figuring out how to do that. And I think that also applies to the way that she approaches chess. Like she just has things that she's learned and she's employing them and they're working so far. Um, and it's just really interesting to kind of, you can, you can sort of see on her, on her face and in her actions, sort of how that, how that logic works for her. It just seems like she's kind of consistently working on a puzzle, which is a really interesting thing to watch. Yeah. There's some really significant commentary about the ways that like when people compete at this high level, the things that you have to do and the amount of time you have to dedicate to the sport. You know, like it's the same thing as like being a musician, right? Like if you want to be one of the best in the world, it's a lot more than just having raw talent. You also have to 
uh, kind of in some cases rely on um, studying people's games, right? And like looking over and studying and kind of like bringing it to a science. And that takes a ton of hard work. And so that's a that's the thing I probably appreciate about this series the most is that it has a strong message about uh, being able to like rely on your support system to help you. Like the early episodes, I know you're in the middle of Abby, really focuses on her relationship with her adoptive mother. And uh, Marielle Heller, my goodness, is so good in this. And their chemistry is just like, it's so unique and unpredictable and it, it really feels like it's on a trajectory. And like, I never felt like I had these characters figured out, which is what makes it so entertaining. And I have to say, I kind of was saying the seventh episode, I'm a little wishy-washy on, but there is something that happens in the seventh episode where I found myself holding back tears. I, I was like, it just felt like such a, an emotional journey. And last thing I'll say um, about Beth Harmon in particular, I really like the way she's written for Avatar The Last Airbender fans. She's kind of like a Zula Right. But not like a, it's like an unstereotypical sociopath kind of character. So if you're curious about that, I, I think that's probably why I was connecting with it so much. Is like you just don't usually get main characters like this. And it's, this is a pretty entertaining show. And I feel like I got a ton out of it. And it was a really good distraction for me this week. I binged it in like two days. I was, I was hooked and uh, definitely one of my favorite series of the year. It probably my favorite series of the year, actually. And one of my favorite like movies if i have to go there it's, uh, i think right now in my yearly rankings it's in my top five top ten so queen's gambit is uh, an easy a for me but what about you abby yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to finishing it um i've been kind of drawing it out a little bit just because i don't i don't want to have it just like quickly done i've 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 binged other things on Netflix that I've enjoyed a lot and have always been kind of sad when they're over so quickly. And knowing that this is a limited series, I kind of want to take my time with this one. But I think it sounds like the journey is going to pay off long term. So, yeah, I'm so far. So far, it's an A from me. I uh, I bet that it will probably continue on that trajectory unless something like major happens, which I don't think it will. Um, but, yeah, I've I've been really enjoying this and it's it's kind of a neat thing. I think competency is a great thing to be able to watch right now. It's there's a lot of comfort in yeah. that. And so yeah, I think it's a it's it's good timing for sure. Have to check on you check on this a little bit later once you finish it. I really want to get your take once you're done with the series. Our our next thing is a more typical film. Uh, so no more miniseries. And Will, you're the only one who saw this uh let him go. This is now playing in theaters which uh, by focus features. So it's a little bit harder to get a hold of this one. If you do not want to go to the movie theaters right now, I don't think it's available on demand yet. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Will. No, it's only in theaters. Okay. Uh, so this is based on a novel by Larry Watson, which came out in 2013. It is a neo-Western drama and it stars Kevin Costner and Diane Lane. Will, what is this movie about? And what did you think of Let Him Go? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have uh, another film that we're talking about this week that I didn't really have any expectations going in. All I knew was that um, Kevin Costner, like you said, and Diane Lane were going to be the two actors involved, which would suggest some sort of a like Man of Steel. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, oh, oh, and also Michael Giacchino did the score, correct? Yeah, I didn't know that either going in. That seemed weird because I wasn't particularly crazy about the score and I tend to like Michael uh, Giacchino. Or how do you pronounce his last name? Giacchino. Uh, who, if listeners don't know, he's probably most legendary, most well known for his score of Up and, and a lot out. of Pixar movies. Um, didn't he do Incredibles too? Like the Incredibles uh, one and two, I mean. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, Oscar-winning uh, composer. Not his best work, in my opinion, in this film, but not 
bat square, I guess, either. Uh, in any case, uh, let them go. Like I said, based on a book, uh, it starts with a Midwestern couple um, grieving over the loss of their adult son. There was a riding accident that results in his untimely death. And they're basically trying to figure out how to move forward. And they seem to they their goal at this point is basically to care for their grandson and the their former, I guess, I guess they're still technically daughter-in-law, but just no longer with the son involved. And she has been remarried to a new guy who unfortunately is just not a good dude. Uh, he is uh, quite abusive and uh, he just mistreats her. When the um, characters Diane Lane and Kevin Costner play catch wise to his actions, they start to move to a different town altogether, closer to the new husband's actual family. And taking a road trip to move there, they're trying to persuade their daughter-in-law to basically go back with them or at least have the um, son, their grandson, come with them so he can avoid danger and not be raised in this fairly oppressive household. But uh, unfortunately, she seems tied to her husband and uh, his family. And so more drastic actions need to be taken from there. And then uh, you can kind of maybe predict what's going to happen. Although I didn't realize this until I was watching this. This is an R-rated film (laughs) and uh, it definitely takes a violent turn in the second half to basically the last like 35 minutes. So uh, I guess prepare for that how you how you may if you are a little bit squeamish, maybe keep that in mind. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't think this is the type of film that's going to be like remarked upon or like remembered much, I think, by the end of the year. But because it's just a fairly simple, uh, mature, adult driven film, there is something quite refreshing, especially in this like franchise time and like a lot of streaming exclusives and things like that. Just see like an old fashioned movie for adults. Uh, I, I don't think Thomas uh, B- B- uh, Thomas Beskos, Bushkos, um, the director and writer of the film, his past work, I guess it's not bad. Just kind of like the films that you might have forgotten about, like, for instance, The Family Stone, um, the uh, Gersney Literary and Potato Peel Society. Uh, hey, Monty that's Carcio. a Netflix movie yeah. series, right? On uh, Nef- yeah. uh, with Lily James. Yeah, I mean, just the type of stuff that you, you probably will forget about shortly after you see it, but you may not dislike it. For instance, Family Stone's a decent enough film. Um, but this one, I've, I would say, of the ones I've seen from him, this is probably his best, just in terms of just being a commendably well crafted film with uh, dependable performances from its established two leads. It was just nice to see, you know, Kevin Costner and um, Diane Lane again. Although, uh, apparently, I guess, um, Swing Vote, I learned before recording, lives rent-free in John Negroni's mind in, in a way that uh, impressed and unsettled me. But you'll have to talk to him, I guess, if you ever get a chance. He'll, just like he'll dragging me under the bus over yeah. here. Okay, all right. I just, I mean, since we're talking about Kevin Costner, it, it just really takes me aback that you uh, you have such a uh, sharp recollection of that film. But nonetheless, um, also, as people will probably remember from Phantom Thread, Leslie Manville plays a key role in the second half of the film. And she's also quite good in this as well. Um, as far as the movie itself, I mean, I think I was more taken by the kind of slow, um, somber first half than the kind of more explosive, uh, pulpy uh, second half of the film. But um, I, I do think this is just by and large a well-made and engaging film with uh, solid performances and just a uh, nice sense of scale back scale that i think is always just nice to see in a film like this it's the type of film that i think if you were to rent it in like 1994 and just watch it on a vcr <laughs> you'd you'd have a good time i don't wow. think it's 
don't think it's blockbuster today. Yeah. I don't think it's the type of film that you should uh, put yourself in any sort of jeopardy to uh, see in a theater. But at this point, I mean, once it comes on Redbox or VOD or something, I think it's a fine enough film. And I, it's one I did generally enjoy more than I anticipated. But um, I would give I was between a B and a high B minus on it. I think I'm mostly going to settle on a uh, high B minus just because I don't I don't think it has like lasting power. I don't think it's like an outright like good to great film, but I think it's just a very it's like one of the highest B minus B minuses I could probably give in that it's just well made for what it is and enjoyable. And I think a lot of people are going to get kicked out of it. So that's let them go. I would recommend it for sure. All right. High B minus from Will. And like we said, let him go is now available in, I think, limited theatrical release. I don't know if we can say it's wide release or anything, but yeah, it could be playing in your area. It could also be playing at your local drive-in. I'm, I believe it's playing at mine. So yeah, it is possible to watch this in a very safe fashion. All right. Our next film is another solo review, but this one is from Abby. Abby, you checked out the new horror film. I think it's a British horror film called Kindred, which stars Tamara Lawrence, Jack Loudon, and Fiona Shaw. I believe this is also playing in select theaters, but you can check it out on VOD streaming on demand if you are able to do so. Uh, This is coming to us from IFC Midnight, and I haven't heard too much about this one. A couple critics I like have given positive reviews, but yeah, Abby, walk us through. What is this film about, and uh, should we be checking out Kindred? Sure. Um, so Kindred is about, uh, a couple more specifically, uh, the woman in a couple, uh, played by Tamara Lawrence. Uh, she is, um, not, not married to, but, uh, kind of domestic partnership with, uh, a guy named Ben, uh, played by Edward Holcroft, who's a nice guy and like comes from, comes from money and has kind of a tense relationship with his mother, uh, Fiona Shaw, uh, because she, they, they live near her. Uh, and she lives in the family's ancestral manor home, and she expects that Ben will one day take it over, which he does not have much of an interest in doing so. Um, he also has a stepbrother, Thomas, and that's uh, played by Jack Loudon, who lives with Margaret, uh, Ben's mom, and it's, it's not entirely sure why he's sticking around. Like, he's an adult. He could live on his own, um, but he seems weirdly devoted to her, and there's maybe a sense that he's sticking around so that he can, like, inherit things one day. Um, kind of worm his way into the will since he's not blood, but wants to be thought of as family. Um, and so early on in the film, um, Ben and, um, sorry, Ben and Charlotte, uh, the, the main characters announce, or yeah, sorry, Ben and Charlotte announced to Margaret that they are planning to move to Australia and Margaret does not take well to that idea at all. Um, and shortly after that, Charlotte discovers, uh, that she is pregnant, which is not a situation that she wanted to be in necessarily. She has kind of a tense relationship with her mom. Her mom, um, had a really severe postpartum depression that, uh, kind of impacted their relationship throughout, uh, throughout Charlotte's life. Um, but the doctor that she goes to, who's like a local, local family doctor, uh, who's played by Anton Lesser, who you might recognize from, um, game of thrones as like the the creepy doctor he's really good at playing creepy doctors yeah uh, he immediately Kyburn, goes and right? tells margaret yeah master Kyburn. uh he he immediately goes and tells margaret exactly what's going on and so now ben knows and so now uh charlotte has no choice over what she does with the baby um and shortly after that ben is killed in an accident uh and uh margaret 
coerces Charlotte to kind of stay with the family for a few days through the funeral because she's kind of in emotional distress. Uh, and that turns into just kind of a slow and very creepy, like gaslighting entrapment situation where Margaret and Thomas just kind of consistently further and further restrict Charlotte's ability to leave the house, to leave, or, yeah, to leave the grounds first, then to leave the house and then to leave a single room in the house. Um, just because she keeps trying to, she keeps trying to get away basically and they won't let her. Um, so it kind of becomes like a fight for survival and Charlotte has to figure out what she is willing to do for her freedom and also for the future of her child. Uh, the idea being that Margaret and Thomas want to keep this child because this child is now the future of their family and they are basically obsessed with making sure that, that, that it's, it's healthy and there and theirs. Um, it's, it's a really moody and creepy film Kindred is. And I think that mood is, is really well, uh, really well cast. Uh, Fiona Shaw is really great as Margaret. She gets a, a very meaty role that um, I feel like she's been getting a little bit more of lately since doing uh, like Killing Eve. Uh, this is, I think, very much kind of of a piece with that, maybe less quirky, more creepy, but still kind of allows her to have that sort of authoritarian um, role that she's really good at doing. Because um, I think a lot of people of my age grew up with her as like Aunt Petunia in the Harry Potter movies, and that was the extent of it. So this really shows the range that she has. Um, the thing that I wasn't crazy about, and I'm going to sound like a broken record here because a lot of it sounds kind of similar to uh, what I said about the dark and the wicked. Uh, there's there's a lot here that is kind of of like the fun yelling at the screen variety. Um, I'm a, I tend to be a yeller during horror movies, and I got a lot of good yells out of this. Um, like things where you you expect somebody to make a bad choice and they make that bad choice and then it pays off and you get to yell because you knew better than they did the whole time. Um, so that happens a lot, but uh, there's sort of a lack of catharsis that I feel is unnecessary and kind of a real bummer <laughs> um, because uh, Charlotte's character isn't, I mean, she doesn't really seem to deserve the treatment that she's getting and the movie doesn't really allow her the, uh, not, not to spoil too much, but doesn't allow her the... Uh, the satisfaction that she really needs. And especially because Margaret and Thomas are just like, they're such jerks and they're so manipulative and they're so awful that like really the only way that this could be satisfying is if they get what's coming to them. And I feel like the movie is a little withholding in that regard. So it's just, it's just shy of satisfying, but it's, it's still pretty enjoyable. Um, I would give it, Probably, uh, I, I think I'd give it a, a B minus in that regard. Um, there's a lot to there's a lot to like about it, but I think it falls just short of being um, being as good as it could have been. Interesting. Yeah, I read. A, I forget where I read this. It might have been L.A. Times, but I read something about how the director uh, Joe Marcantonio and he co-wrote it with uh, Jason McColgan. And I remember them saying that they got the idea for this story, this like gaslighting angle you're talking about, Abby, from like their own real experiences with pregnancy. I think both of them, their wives were dealing with like issues with like being gaslit by the doctors and stuff. And um, I think um, I think it was McColgan who literally like they, they ended up having their baby like at their house because of something involving the the doctors. And yeah, I'm very curious if that comes through in this movie, that sort of like anxiety of that that guy's like that gaslighting you're talking about and and kind of like being manipulated and and all of that uh, i heard that this also has some connections to rosemary's baby and and some of that respect so 
very interesting movie. Uh, sounds like Kindred is worth a watch, uh, kind of similar to uh, Dark and the Wicked, unless you want to be in a good mood <laughs> with the films you're watching. That might This might not be the best film, but uh, like we said before, it is now playing in select theaters and streaming on demand. All right, Will, you have one last review for us. Now, I was supposed to see Come Play. Um, I had an issue with my screener, so I wasn't able to see this. So I can't join you, but I, I've been dropping the ball with Ashton on Gillian Jacobs this year. We've had a bunch of Gillian Jacobs movies come out, and every time I'm going to watch some, watch one, which I fully intend to do, something something happens. It's like I'm cursed. And, but apparently that is a good way to describe this film, which is a horror thriller. It's called Come Play, written and directed by Jacob Case. Like I mentioned, it does star Gillian Jacobs, along with John Gallagher Jr., Azzy Robertson, and Winslow Fegley. Will, what is this What is this Come Play movie about? This is another Focus Features film. It came out last week, and so we're a little late on it. But yeah, what is, what is Come Play, and what did you think? Uh, yeah, so Come Play is the feature screenwriting and directorial debut of Jacob Chase. It uh, follows primarily the perspective of a young boy named Oliver, who is nonverbal and autistic. He uses primarily a uh, smartphone to communicate as well as nonverbal cues. Uh, but for the most part, he's unable to express himself or really communicate with the outside world, including his parents, uh, which includes a sympathetic mom played by Gillian Jacobs, as well as a father who is caring and generally uh, willing to help, played by John Gallagher Jr., but isn't really uh, fully up to the task at the same time. But um, as this is all going on, there is a creepy undercurrent because um, through the tablet that uh, the father finds and gives to his son, um, there is this character named Larry, who uh, basically wants to be the friend of Oliver because he uh, tries to entrap kids who don't have friends and basically kind of lures them in and, uh, you know, consumes them more or less from what we can tell. And because Larry or because Oliver is unable to speak, he can't really communicate his terrors. So there is uh, the sense of like unnerve and stars like he clearly has, you know, these terrors, these uh, anxieties are being reasonably produced through technology, but um, he's unable to communicate them with anyone, including his parents. Uh, as I was telling John, the one reason I've been kind of back and forth on my review for this film is because I've been kind of trying to figure out where I stand on it as far as a reputation, repu- reputation, <laughs> uh, representation of um, autism and uh, the autistic experience. Uh, I'm on the spectrum myself, so I tend to seek out films that are uh, telling this side of things and and giving a voice uh, as this film, I think, is trying to do. I don't quite know, though, whether or not the film is fully able to, uh, you know, give a perspective on this that that feels entirely uh, beneficial. I'm trying to figure out ultimately if I feel that this film is really giving a window into a side that hasn't really been seen, including for parents who um, have autistic children and then face a number of challenges when they uh, raise their kids. But also uh, like the two parents here are very concerned and caring and want to help uh, despite the uh, challenges that may present themselves. But uh, as I think a horror film, I, I tend to find that this movie is kind of in the same vein as like signs and that, I think for the first hour or so, it's really effectively 
suspenseful and I think it, it's able to be even despite having a kind of silly premise as far as the Larry character I think the movie from Jacob Chase's uh, assuredness as a first time filmmaker he is able to capture this kind of building um, sense of unnerve and uh, anxiety throughout and it has I, I think quite intentionally an ambient feel because um, or sorry ambient feel because um Amblin was a co-producer on the film, and I think it's intentionally kind of evoking that Spielbergian poltergeist type of thing. I know poltergeist was supposed to be, um, what's his face? Um, Joe Dante, but I I think. Toby Hooper, actually. Oh, Toby. Sorry, Toby Hooper. My bad. Uh, Joe Dante was Gremlins. Um, But in any case, yeah, uh, thank you for catching it. I I think I understand why the reviews are ultimately kind of mixed. I, I find myself fairly mixed on the film as well. But I, I will say that I think, you know, Gillian Jacobs and um, John Gallagher Jr. are, you know, commendably good in this film. But it's really ultimately our lead, who is uh, Ashy Robertson. I believe this is the kid who was also in Marriage Story last year, which was yeah. one of my favorites. Uh, and he's quite good in that film. He's very good in this one as well. I think he's able to uh, communicate the uh, internal struggles of oliver's uh plight throughout the film in a way that, that doesn't feel like cloying or doesn't feel like it's insincere i think he, he he conveys a lot of pathos especially for a non-verbal performance uh in a way that i think is what ultimately uh endeared me a little bit more to the film as well um even though i did have my shortcomings with the ending and and i feel like it's kind of a whimper compared to uh what's able to communicate that's where i bring up the science thing because i feel like science is the perfect example of like a film that sets itself up a few shortcomings around the way, but like for like 70 minutes, it's like really solid. And then like, and my Shyamalan doesn't really know how to end it. <laughs> and then he comes up with a really dumb explanation <laughs> that I, I just think is uh, just your kind of typical example of like a film that just doesn't uh, quite know how to end itself and, and ends in a fairly silly fashion. This film doesn't end quite as sim- as a uh, uh, silly as that film, but um, I, I, th- I just felt the ending didn't quite live up to my expectations leading up to it, which was disappointing. But nevertheless, I think what I'm able to appreciate about the film, it dears me enough to where I'll I think I'll give it a low B minus because it has stuck with me more than I was anticipating. And I do think there is something that is effectively chilling uh, throughout the first half of the film, as well as my willingness to appreciate how it brings a sense of perspective to the nonverbal autistic uh, character in a way that is in a major film. And a lot of people will see it and hopefully have more room to understand and sympathize with uh, families and family members who deal with these challenges on a day-to-day basis. So yeah, I think I'm giving it a low B. I'm, I'm not wild about the film and I think it could obviously be better in a lot of cases, but what endears me continues to endear me and uh, I'm excited to see where all the players involved go from here. So that's come play. Yeah. It's sounds like this is a, an interesting one. Um, I, I didn't have the biggest expectations for it, but I was curious just because I know Max Sender is a cinematographer and for people who don't know, he's, a pretty pretty prolific cinematographer he did the hills have eyes and uh he, he's done some stinkers it's kind of funny you mentioned like amblin considering i think he did earth to echo which i guess you can't really follow that movie much for the cinematography but um also you know recent films like crawl and shazam uh max Sanders is a really solid cinematographer i'm surprised they got him for this considering it doesn't seem like it has like huge ambitions or anything yeah now you mean the remake of hills have eyes right not the west craven one Right, the 2006. Yeah, okay, film. just making sure. That's what I figured. Yeah, the Alexander Ahaw one. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Just, yeah, just and uh, I, I also am a fan of um, 
he did the crazies and i don't know, I know not everybody likes that film much but I another west craven remake i think or is that yeah, george a. romero uh, uh it's one of one of the greats i forget which one did the original yeah. but yeah and, it's romero um, it's romero okay yeah, yeah and uh also uh one of my favorite uh like low-key favorite composers roque banos did this uh which is a reason why i kind of wanted to check it out but i was yeah. surprised uh he did he did the score for uh don't breathe and uh which i was really impressed with and i didn't yeah. see the man who killed don quixote i know you did well but he did that as well yeah i liked don quixote i and i did enjoy the score as well i should have mentioned that before but um yeah that that does play a key and uh, lasting role as well as cinematography and creating the dread and unnerved that I felt throughout the first half. Yeah, the first real, hour. Real, real talent in this thing. I just, I'm not as familiar with the director, Jacob Chase. And I didn't see the short film he based this on. Um, Nor I did I. It's called. But uh, Larry. That said. That was the original title. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Larry uh, was the name of the short film. Yeah, that said, uh, I don't know if I'll have a chance to see this. I hope I do just because I am curious about all of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it might be a little, little tricky considering the less than stellar reaction so far. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure at some point on a Friday afternoon at two o'clock, you'll check it out. Wow. Okay. So, Will, <laughs> Abby, in case you don't know, Will gives me a lot of heat, a lot of friction because I like to watch horror movies during the day. I do. I, I like having some breakfast, pouring the coffee out, going over to my desk, opening up the windows, letting the birds chirp and watching people die on screen. And yeah, if that makes me strange, I and, disagree. Uh, it makes me a cinema holic. I don't know. I just I, I bring it up as well, because earlier this week in the midst of uh, election coverage, John just like watched uh, Dark and the Wicked at lunch. Uh, not really a lunchtime film, I got to say. It's just like I, I just don't get the logic of you thinking the Dark and the Wicked <laughs> based on the title alone would be a film you watch midday uh, during lunch hour. But nonetheless. I mean, I watched it midday and you know how my reaction went to that. So I, uh, I, wow. I both understand and do not that that approach. OK, I have to say during COVID times, I very rarely watch movies at night now because a lot of it is because I don't have time at night. At night is usually when I hang out and socialize. Yeah, now. You're too scared. So too scared i'm not scared <laughs> all right uh last film we have this week uh i finally checked out the new documentary called time an american documentary a new documentary produced and directed by garrett bradley and garrett bradley has done a lot of short films short documentaries i believe this is her first feature length documentary if i'm not mistaken um again i, I would i'd have to look it up just to be sure that said, Time premiered at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year, and it actually won the U.S. Documentary Directing Award, and I missed it. Uh, this is yet another Sundance film that got a ton of acclaim, and I missed it, and I missed it when it came out on Amazon. It's actually been out for at least three weeks now, by the time you're listening to this, on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, I believe this was acquired by Amazon Studios shortly after the film festival, and I could absolutely see this winning uh, best documentary uh, definitely is a huge contender. And that's because it's really good. Um, it features the real life of Sybil Fox Richardson and her husband, Robert G. Richardson. And time is just that. It chronicles a struggle of time over the course of 20 years, uh, more than 20 years. I think it's like 25 years or so where this couple in the mid-1990s, they're trying to achieve the American dream, but they each make certain decisions that lands both of them in jail. 
And even though Sybil, uh, the wife in this scenario, she gets out of jail early um, because she was more of an accomplice in the crime that they commit, her husband is sentenced to 60 years for a crime that uh, I think at the low end, typically you'd be charged five years. And the, this documentary chronicles that insane injustice and the fact that this happened. They live in, uh, I believe, either in New Orleans or like right outside of New Orleans. And we watch as Sybil raises their family. She has with him six sons. And this is such a touching movie in how we watch her life over the ensuing decades, um, struggling and clawing to fight the system in ways that will overcome this incredibly unfair ruling. Uh, because I believe at this point, uh, I, don't, I don't know if they stress it, but like there were no priors, uh, there's no chance of pro- parole or probation. And she laments that her six sons aren't able to really spend time with their father before they become men. And at the same time, like we've talked a lot about like very oppressive movies this week, there's so much hope. And there's so much sensitivity and warmth in this documentary because we do have these home videos which tell the story. So the first thing you'll notice about Time is that it's not like a documentary crew was with this family for 25 years. Most of the documentary is directed by Sybil where she has her video camera and she is recording her life with her boys. Uh, There's a point in this where we're in like the modern day and she's doing like a Facebook live video and it really connects. You understand that like, this is a person who back when there was no such thing, there was no Snapchat, there was no Periscope going live. She had that sort of like um, future, like she was able to see into the future of like how that could be a way for her to chronicle what her life was like. Foresight. Foresight. Thank you. I was trying to think it's like futuristic sight. There's something like that. Um, but yeah, she, she's, she's very ahead of her time. And this, this documentary is a, a really striking balance between the sort of like grassroots activism of like rallying other people behind a cause, which is very relevant for this past week, but then also with like recognizing what you're fighting for. And for Sybil, that's her family. That's for her, her kids. And we see like from videos of like them hanging out in the pool and they're living their lives and they're, they're such sweet, gorgeous boys. And in the background, someone is asking Sybil like, oh, you're married? And her having to navigate that uncomfortable conversation all in a, a home video, like something that she shot herself. And I'm really impressed with how Garrett Bradley stitched all this together. This was done in partnership with the New York Times. And it does in that way feel like a really well done profile, really well done outline of a really remarkable life. And I I came out of this documentary with so much respect for um, Sybil Fox Richardson, who is just such a powerhouse of a human being, um, dealt such an insanely unfair situation, but through love and warmth with her children is able to really fight the fight. And I, I felt very inspired by this documentary. I highly, highly recommend it. I think that if anything, the only things that you'll find, some people might find some scenes in this jarring. The whole thing is in black and white, which is a wonderful stylistic choice. Um, a bunch of people did the cinematography. But there, there are some moments where it does feel a little out of place. There are some moments where I wish we would have gotten more detail out of 
what is going on. And so the documentary does not hold your hand in terms of like what year it is, or you really have to be paying close attention to like the ages. And um, I wish it had gone a little farther in that respect. You were saying to me earlier that there's apparently a black and white shot of uh, of yes, character watching Impractical Jokers, which is like <laughs> yeah. like like the meme on Twitter, like cinema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, that, that was a little jarring to say the least. Um, that's it. I mean, all of these all of these are very very minor flaws. My very high A minus. Uh, this is definitely one of my favorite f- documentaries of the year. It's definitely. Definitely pretty high up there. I could see this maybe being in my top 10 of 2020. We'll have to see. But uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of time. And I hope, Will, Abby, you both have a chance to check it out on your own pretty soon. Yeah, thanks, John. I'm I'm really excited to, to watch this one. It's been on my list for a while. So thank you for giving me the kick in the pants that I need to finally, you know, buckle down and check it out. Yeah, I have to, I have to admit it was a last minute thing. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think I saw it's like only 80 something minutes, too. Yeah, it is very lean. 81 minutes. Uh, it's such a quick watch. And like I said before, it is available on Amazon uh, Prime Video. So it's pretty accessible if you have that. Nice. Good to hear. Yeah, I don't think it's still playing. It was playing in theaters for a while, but that was like a month ago. I don't know if it's playing anywhere else, but you could always check to see if it happens to be available in your area. But OK, that is all. That's everything. That's all the films we have for this week. Let's uh, do some some plugs, though, because we've, we've been up to a lot. We forgot to do plugs last week. Abby Olchesi, you got to do something very fun this past week. Got to gotta plug it for the listeners. What did, what did you do? Um, I got to be part of uh, a, a TEDx event at uh, the KU Edwards campus, which is uh, not coincidentally my employer. Um, and uh, they're, they're the kind of continuing education arm of the University of Kansas based in Overland Park. But they did their, their very first TEDx event this week, and I got to be one of the presenters. I did a, uh, I did a TED talk on um, the importance of critical thinking and media literacy and how you can practice that by uh, trying to think more like a film critic. So basically just, you know, if everybody thought like me, the world would be better is the, uh, the goal of that talk. <laughs> not, not really, but you know, maybe a little bit. Um, so that was, yeah, not to, not to make it weird, but yeah. Uh, so the, uh, the, it was recorded the video of that. I don't think is available yet, but it will be up eventually. I think after the first of the year, but yeah, I'll, I'll let you all know when that's available. Yes, eagerly anticipating that. And we will, of course, share it. Uh, so proud of you, Abby. Congratulations. That's such an awesome opportunity. And we now understand what you meant all these times when you were like, and that is it for my TED Talk. Really, you were, you were being literal. You are taking notes. That's right. I was just practicing. Yeah. Foretelling. <laughs> Foretelling. Foresight. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Awesome, awesome. Uh, did, did you have anything this past week, Will Ashen, that you would like to plug? Um, no, not really. I've, um, uh, you have reviews coming out, right? I would hope so. Um, yeah, I, I recently uh, the City Hall since that movie came out in limited release on virtual cinemas. Uh, that one's on the site as well, and I have a couple others. I know um, Wolf Walkers and then Seventy Six Days are coming out fairly soon, so you should expect those two reviews on the site. I think fairly soon. So look out for those. Sounds good. Um, I was on two podcasts this past week. Uh, one of them is out right now. Um, I had the opportunity to be on TMI Hollywood which was super fun. Uh, that was a really fun panel. And I got to rep Cinemaholics. I wore my Cinemaholics hoodie and it was Zoom. So I got to do my background uh, was uh, the Pennsylvania like poll live stream. 
So super, super excited that I got to do that. <laughs> so dumb. But um, no, it was cool. I got to talk about uh, movies in general and um, they're a really fun crew. I got to talk about like what we've been doing for the show. So if you're interested, you can find that on uh, TMI Hollywood's podcast feed. They also did a Facebook Live if you want to see me on video uh, on their Facebook page. And then also I got to be on one of my favorite podcasts uh, with one of my favorite podcasters. Uh, I don't know if some of you have heard of That's What I'm Tolkien About which is the Lord of the Rings podcast made by our friends over at WBNE, uh, the Bacon and Eggs podcast, which we've done a lot of fun collaborations with them before. Uh, definitely subscribe if you haven't already. But uh, they have a podcast on their network called That's What I'm Talking About, which is hosted by Mary Clay Watt. She is wonderful. We had a blast talking about the first 46 minutes and 52 seconds of the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And I have to say, it's very strange not watching the fellowship of the ring and then just jumping right into the two towers and stopping. <laughs> I was very like, wow, interesting, but it was really fun. We did like literally scene by scene. We had tons of fun uh, just talking about this movie. And uh, we talked about other Lord of the Rings stuff. She just read all the books for the first time. So she was able to like lend a lot of knowledge on that. So if you want a really fun, engaging uh, podcast conversation, that's going to be coming out later this week. And if you want to hear me uh, talk about Dave the Barbarian, one of the greatest animated series of all time and most short-lived, then you'll get that as well. But all right, that's it for me. That's awesome. I'm, I'm excited to listen to that. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Everybody should subscribe to That's What I'm Talking About. It's a wonderful podcast. I'm a big fan of uh, puns in my podcast title, so I definitely appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Uh, it has it ain't yeah. ogre energy for sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right, that'll do it for our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. From the Internet, California, I am John Negroni. From the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. From the Internet, Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time.